are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Please stand and let's read from Acts chapter 3. I'm on page 1082 of the Black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I don't know what it is in the journal, but Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have to give to you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, before we jump into today's teaching, let's quickly get our bearings on where we are and our progress in this series so far. We're in the second main section of Luke's theological history of the church, where we're starting to see the church kind of gathered together. And after Peter's first great sermon, more than 3,000 Jews come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. And we're told with lots of other teaching and lots of other signs and wonders, the message continues to spread. But beginning in chapter 3, the story starts to turn as one particular miracle we're about to read about pushes the religious authorities just a bit too far. So turn to Acts chapter 3, and let's jump into today's teaching. A few weeks ago, I was in California for a conference, a three-day-long conference. It's a gathering of pastors and church leaders from across our denomination. We get together every two years or so to do some business, for training, for connecting with one another, and for worship and preaching. And I was uh, in one of those worship services, kind of in the front, um, you know, people surrounding me and all of that, and I saw the official photographer for the denomination up front, kind of you know, taking pictures of what's on stage and taking pictures uh, of us in the auditorium, and I, I clearly remember thinking, if I'm in any of these pictures, they can't use them. Because I was, I was in a room of about a thousand people, twice the size as this. The music is playing. We are singing and looking around. Everyone has their hands in the air. People have their faces up. They're crying. They're emotionally involved and open to God in worship. And I'm looking around going, what's wrong with me? Because I'm not feeling any of this. 
actually have that experience pretty much every time I'm at a pastor's conference where I'm in an auditorium and we're worshiping and I'm like, you know, I must just be a really bad pastor because I don't feel whatever everyone else is feeling and I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong with me or what's different about who I am, but there's some part of me or something in me that makes me feel like when I'm in a group of my peers, I'm never really in. I'm on the outside of this group, just sort of watching everyone else on the inside. I've been thinking about that experience a lot this week as I've studied uh, the story of this beggar, this lame man at the gate of the temple uh, begging for money. Because I don't think I'm the only one who's had an experience like that. Uh, Yours is probably different. I don't imagine you're beating down doors trying to get into a big room full of pastors. It's a real party if you can get in, but you have to take my word for it. But you've been on the outside, right? There's been a table you wanted a seat at. There's been a a list you you wished you were on, a, a group that you were included in, an invitation that you wanted to receive. We all know what it's like to be on the outside. But what we feel, what I felt at that conference is a shadow compared to this beggar's experience. And though it may be at different degrees, the experience itself is, is, is pretty similar. And in the end, the same person pulls both him and me and us back up. Because the point of the story that we're studying this morning, the point of this story isn't the miracle of the healing. It's not even about Peter and John wielding the power of the name of Jesus to make miracles happen. The point of this story is that the real miracle is always new life in Jesus as someone on the outside is brought in. The real miracle is new life in Jesus. And and, and let's look at Acts 3 and I'll show you what I mean. By the way, if you want a helpful way of kind of tracking our progress through this story, you could think of it in terms of being outside and then inside and then right side up. Uh, Outside, inside, right side up as we move through these 10 verses in kind of those three main sections. Let's let's jump into Acts chapter 3. Now, as we read this, we have to keep in mind one of the marks of the early church is that it still thought of itself as fundamentally and primarily Jewish. After all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and the things that are happening in this new Jesus movement are fulfillments of Israel's hopes and God's purposes to bless the world through Israel. So in these early days, before they're forced to flee Jerusalem because of persecution, the majority of the Jewish people who have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, they continue to participate in the temple practices, not just the prayers and the sacrifice and the services, because in a way that we can't intuitively grasp today, the, the temple itself was the center of Jewish life. In one building were combined all the functions of religion and government and finance and economics and culture and national leadership and the Butcher's Guild are all in this one place. And the high priest was just as important a political figure and an economic figure as he was a religious leader. I mean, imagine New York City, Washington, D.C., Chicago, L.A., all rolled into one with 
Wall Street and, and Hollywood and the National Gallery and Capitol Hill and the White House and the Supreme Court and the National Cathedral all in one building. That's what the temple is. That's what we're talking about. So anyone who is anyone is part of the regular proceedings, the regular work of the temple, and everyone else makes sure that they're regularly part of it too. This is the center of the Jewish world, the beating heart of Jerusalem. And now imagine that you're locked out of it. Because of something you can't control, something you were born with, you will never be part of what's going on inside the temple. You will never be a full member of the social life of the world that you live in. You don't even bother to aspire to a seat at the table because you're not even allowed to just go in and watch. Problem, of course, is you're not just shut out of the life of the city, you're also irreversibly barred from entering into the presence of God. God dwells in that building. If you want to meet with God, you need to go into the building, and you can't go in. You never get to join in the prayers. You never get to sit in a service. You can never participate in the sacrifices or offer your own sacrifice for your own sins. You never get to experience cleansing when you're defiled. You, you never find God's grace and forgiveness. You could never experience the peace of just knowing you've been forgiven. You could never be more alone and on the outside than if you were this lame beggar sitting at the gate of the temple. You see how the story begins on the outside. Pick it up in, in verse two. Peter and John are headed into the temple and verse two says that a man lame from birth was being carried whom they, whoever these unnamed folks are who helped get him to the place where he can do the only thing that, the only skill he's got, begging, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, the gate that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. This guy's not allowed to enter into the temple. Jewish law is pretty clear on that. If you can't get around on your own, then you're unfit, unclean, unworthy to enter in. And this is a guy who has to be carried everywhere. He can't move on his own. See, Jews passing by, walking by this guy on their way into the temple would be asking themselves, I wonder what he did you see a guy like that and you start to wonder, I wonder what he did that made him like this. Or maybe his parents did something. And that's why God's punishing his parents by giving him this guy as, as a son. Of course, a Greek or a Roman reader reading this would, would look at a guy like this and, and see someone without the, the moral fortitude, the courage to better himself. Because his outward physical condition is obviously a sign of his inward, weak, soft character. If he just had the discipline, right, he, he, he wouldn't have this problem. That may sound ex extreme, but we tend to think the same way when we see uh, someone begging for money or, or someone who's homeless on the streets. Their own bad decisions got them there, right? If they just were, you know, morally a little bit more disciplined, they wouldn't be in this situation. Or if they just, if they just get a job, they wouldn't be on the streets begging for money. 
Now, it doesn't matter if we look at this guy judgmentally or we look at him with compassion. That doesn't change his condition. It's still hopeless. When you're born with something, no one ever expects you to be healed from it. He's forever on the outside. Except if you've read the story before, you know all that's about to change. And he has no idea it's coming. Let's keep reading in, in verse 3. Now, he's there at the gate. He's asking everybody that's going by. He's saying, you know, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he, the beggar, fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You hear the irony in those words as we know what's coming? Well, if we didn't know what was coming, uh, we would be kind of in the same place that uh, the beggar is. See, I, I think Luke is telling the story in such a way as setting us up to expect that Peter and John are going to give him something physical, something material. He's just told us a few verses above that the, these early Jesus followers are selling off their property in order to have enough liquid capital to share with those who are in need. This is what the church is doing, and now here's someone in need. Now, this beggar at being told, like, look at us. I don't know about you guys, but I have never once passed somebody on the street asking for money and said, look at me, and then said, I don't have anything for you. <laughs> so when they, he says, look at us, this beggar is expecting probably an extra generous gift. Like, here's, here's two men, obviously important. They're about to show how important they are by this this grandiose public display of generosity. Look, everyone, at how much we're giving. That may be what he's thinking. Now, we're thinking as we read this, like, hey, this church is gathering together. They're liquefying their assets. They're sharing with people in need. Maybe this is how the message is going to spread through the financial aid and assistance that this group of people living together is able to extend to those who don't know Jesus. Either way, we're all wondering, what is this gift of money going to do for this guy? Is this how he comes to faith in the Messiah? By having his material needs met? Well, this makes Peter's next words disappointing for the beggar and disorienting for us. Peter says, I have no silver and gold. Silver and gold have I none. Or, look, I, I don't have any money. Right? Look at me. I don't have any money. Well, then what's the point of stopping up and stooping down and asking for his undivided attention if you don't have any money to give him? Well, of course, the point is that Peter has something better than money to offer. Now, there's nothing wrong with money. Luke in his gospel has shown us over and over again that those who are citizens of the kingdom of God living out this kingdom are very open-handed with their money, often giving to those who are in need. There's nothing wrong with money, but in this passage, giving the man money would only temporarily fix the problem. It actually wouldn't even fix the problem because money can't heal him. Money can't restore his legs to wholeness. Money can't get him inside the temple. Money can't find him grace and forgiveness. But Peter says the name of Jesus can. The authority and the power and the compassion of Jesus 
can. Because in the kingdom of God embodied in the, this brand new Jesus movement, the outside are moving inside and the upside down is turning right side up. And new life is here and being offered and it's a miracle. So Peter stoops down, looks him right in the eyes and says, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I want to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in the name of the Messiah, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, rise up and walk. And when Peter holds out his hand, the lame beggar has a choice to make. Does he believe in the power and the authority of Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the one the whole city is buzzing about, the one that people are saying could be the Messiah sent from God, this one who was crucified, but who some people say it rose from the dead? Could it really be true? And I'm tempted to say, well, only one way to find out, give it a try. But that's not how it works. Jesus' name isn't a magical incantation, a formula which you use with skill in order to get a specific result as long as you say it correctly, Wingardium Leviosa, right? As long as you say it perfectly right, then it works. That is not the way that Jesus' name works. This isn't a magic formula, This is Peter appealing to the authority of Jesus to heal this man. And you can only act on someone's authority if you're doing what they want you to do. So the only way Jesus acts to heal this man is if he responds in faith. If to him the name Jesus means Messiah, the the Savior of Israel, the one with the power to heal, to cleanse, to forgive, to save. And we don't know when the moment of faith occurred. Maybe it was looking in Peter's eyes and seeing how deeply Peter's own faith rested on Jesus. Or maybe it was when he extended his hand to grab Peter's. Or when Peter lifted him up and for the first time in his life, he tried to hold himself up on legs he knew didn't work. But Peter is confident that he has the authority to proclaim in Jesus' name that this man can be healed. It's an invitation. You believe it too? And so whenever the moment of faith occurred, as this guy was lifted to his feet for the first time in his adult life, his feet and his ankles, were told, were strengthened, made perfectly whole. Muscles and tendons which had never in his life moved are now moving him. And he walks. And he doesn't just walk, verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the table with uh, the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. He's in. The guy who had been on the outside for 40 years, his entire life is now inside, and everything is right side up. Now, it's hard not to smile when you read what's happened to this man. We've got a 40-year-old guy who is certainly not conducting himself with the slow decorum of, uh, that befits a man of his age. He's leaping. 
Because God has met him on the outside of the temple. God has blessed him on the outside. God has given him new life. God has healed him in a way that no one expected anyone could be healed. Greek physicians actually include congenital limb abnormalities in their list of things that aren't even worth praying for because the Greek God of healing isn't powerful enough to to heal things that were broken when you were born. No one expects the lame to walk, which is why there's more in this word leaping than just his unbridled excitement. Luke is purposely echoing the words of Isaiah 35. All of Luke's writings are echoing the words of Isaiah, but in Isaiah 35, the prophet Isaiah writes about life in the renewed kingdom of God and writes, Well, when this happens, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This healing, this miracle, it's not just one isolated incident. We're told there are wonders and signs happening by the apostles all over the place. It's not just, you know, some great example of the apostles wielding power in the name of of Jesus. Luke tells us about this one, not just because it incites the opposition that's to come in the next chapter or two, but Luke tells us about this one because it so perfectly highlights through the the leaping of the lame man, it highlights the grand plan of God to fulfill the promises of Isaiah and the hopes of Israel in and through Jesus' followers, the Messiah people, the, the Christians And of course, in the way he tells the story, it's hugely important that this formerly lame beggar can now go inside the temple. Not just because he can fully integrate into Jewish society, no longer being outcast and, and outside, but because through his praise in the temple and Peter's explanation of what happened, again, in the temple, we're gonna look at those verses next week, through what is happening and what is being celebrated and proclaimed in the temple, the temple itself is now becoming the place where salvation through Israel's Messiah is, is proclaimed and celebrated and experienced. This is what the temple is for, to show where heaven meets earth, where God visits his people all through a man who was on the outside with his whole life upside down, not the way it's supposed to be, who is now moved in. See, the real miracle isn't the healing in his legs. It is the new life in his heart. The real miracle is always new life in Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes lose sight of that that fact. That, yeah, it, it would be incredible to be healed There's many of us who have prayed for healing for ourselves, for others, and it would be absolutely incredible to be healed, and it would be a miracle. But to be spiritually dead and made alive is a miracle of a whole nother order. One that physical healing only temporarily points to. The real miracle is always new life in Jesus. So what does that mean for us? If it's true that the real miracle isn't the healing, it's the new life in Jesus, well, then how do we apply a passage like this to our own lives? Well, three thoughts come to mind. First, I think we need to be careful 
not to over-apply the miraculous healing part of the story. And it's true that Peter and John, as apostles, are in a unique position to authoritatively proclaim and declare in the name of Jesus that physical healing is available. And that physical healing, theologically, it communicates that the coming of the kingdom of God in this new Jesus movement, that things are being turned right side up. But the real miracle, remember, it's not the healing, it's new life in Jesus. That's what Peter will go on to explain. And I know we, in the normal course of events, do not find ourselves in situations where we authoritatively call down healing in Jesus' name for people's physical ailments. So it's not in the normal way that God seems to work. But we can proclaim that new life is available in Jesus' name. And that's the real miracle, after all. Even if God chooses never to physically heal, we can still be part of restoring people to spiritual wholeness. We can be part of spiritual healing and to belonging within the worshiping life of the broader community. And that is a greater miracle than any physical healing because physical healing is temporary. Spiritual wholeness is forever. I forget sometimes that if I've come to new life in Jesus, my life has been changed as much as, actually more than, if I were born without the use of my legs and then suddenly regained their use. If I've come to new life in Jesus, my life has been changed more than getting the use of my legs back. As miraculous and transformative as that would, would be, new life in Christ is on a whole nother level. We can be part of that miracle. may not look as flashy as people leaping up and being able to walk, but new life in Christ is so much more longer lasting. That's the first thought. The second thought about applying this is, I'm struck by the way that Peter and John saw this lame man sitting at the temple gate. If you've ever lived in a place where there are lots of people asking for money, you learn quickly, like head down, right? Eyes averted. Don't make eye contact. And people on the fringes can sort of become part of the background, can't they? People that you just don't even see anymore. People that are part of your life, but just to serve you or give you something, or they're just there getting in your way. But some, for some reason, the normal course of their day, on their way to this appointment in the temple to be there for the service, these guys took the time to stop and to look and to see. And something in them knew this, this is the guy we've been sent to today. This is the man we've been sent to today. And I'm, I believe that if we're open to that same kind of prompting, we can ask ourselves the same question. Who am I being sent to today? This week, when we're going about our business, who is God sending us to that needs to hear the message of new life in the name of Jesus, the message that we have uh, that they have not heard? It may be somebody you see every day at work or in a class or at home, uh, someone who doesn't know that new life is calling to them in the name of Jesus, or it may be someone you've never met and you will never meet again, uh, but you're in their path or they're in your path just for you to be open to God's leading saying, I'm sending you to this person. Today, that person needs to hear 
that there's new life available in the name of Jesus. Because that person, or maybe you if you're listening in the room or listening to this later, this may be you feeling on the outside. You're on the outside. You're the one who knows that you've never really been in the, in the presence of God. You've never felt the peace that comes from knowing that your sins have been forgiven and taken care of by Jesus. The, the message to you today is the same as the message to this lame man. Just simple. I, look, I don't have any money to give you. I mean, I have money, but it's not gonna solve your problems. It would just paper over the symptoms in the short term. I don't have any money to give you, but I do have something better. New life in Jesus. If you take his hand, he'll pull you up into new life in him. One night while I was at that pastor's conference, uh, I was out eating dinner by myself. Uh, it hadn't occurred to me for some reason to line up you know, dinner with friends who I knew were gonna be there. So I was all by myself feeling sorry for myself and uh, journaling, um, generally just moping, but also honestly trying to get in touch with whatever these things are called feelings and whatever I may have been feeling. And so I was writing down different things, and a phrase came to mind that when I looked it up later, realized was from Psalm uh, 51. Psalm 51, where David writes, restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy. So I wrote it down as a prayer and walked back to my Airbnb. And the next morning, I shuffled in late to the worship service. I was still feeling pretty blah. And by the time I got to a seat, I hadn't tried to be on time. So we were like halfway through the opening and we were into the second or third song and halfway through the second or third song. So by the time I set everything down and stopped and kind of looked at the screen and started singing, we were singing these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see, whom, see him there who made, him who made an end to all my sin. And it just hit me, and I uh, started, I almost started crying, but I sucked it back in. <laughs> and for a split second, I felt like all the other pastors in the room. <laughs> I've arrived. <laughs> God met me and pulled me up and invited me back into the life I have in Jesus that I had forgotten, that I had despaired of. And in this story, it may have been Peter whose hand reached out to the lame beggar, but it was Jesus who pulled him up and gave him new life. And he can do the same for you. Whether you need to be reminded of the life you have in Christ or you need to be brought into new life in Christ, whatever miracle you think you need, physical, financial, uh, whatever miracle you think you need, remember the real miracle is new life in Christ. Take his and he will pull you up from outside to inside, from upside down to right side up. He's holding out his hand to you. Let's pray. Father, we admit that so often we, we think the miracle is, is the healing uh, the miracle it would be someone coming along with the load of money they're just going to dump on us and take care of all of our problems. Or, or the person who could just say the right thing or, or has access to the right power to fix the temporary thing that's wrong in our lives. And yet, Father, we know that ultimately the money runs out and the limbs atrophy again. 
and the health leaves us. But new life in Christ can never go away. Father, we know there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved, but the name of Jesus, the authority and the power and the compassion of Jesus calling us to new life in him. And so for those of us who know we have that new life in him, may the outstretched hands of Jesus remind us that he will continue to pull us into the experience of life in him. And for those of us who have no idea what it means to have life in Christ, may we grasp the outstretched hand of Jesus and find ourselves enfolded in the embrace of the God who loves us. Draw us in, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.